everybody? Uh, nine days ago, on the uh, 17th of May, a Friday, uh, West Leaderville Primary School across the road flew their Australian flag at half-mast. Uh, the honour was, of course, being paid to former Prime Minister Bob Hawke, who had died the previous day, and who attended our primary school in the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, I understand that as a child, Bob Hawke lived in Tate Street, only a few hundred metres away from where we are now, and his dad was the congregation, Congregationalist Minister at the church down the road here, uh, a building that has now been converted into hipster apartments uh, for hip cool urbanites. Um, Bob Hawke uh, was um, the first Prime Minister of Australia to lose office not by way of general election, but rather by way of challenge from within his party, losing the post of Prime Minister to Paul Keating in December of 1991. Uh, I believe that uh, Bob Hawke was the uh, first Prime Minister of Australia to experience this. Although, uh, actually, Australia has a long history of so-called leadership spills. Um, it's just that they've never been successful with respect to the top job before Keating. However, since that time... We've all got, had, had an opportunity to get pretty used to these leadership challenges and, and spills. Um, Julia Gillard was replaced by Kevin Rudd in 2010. Kevin sought to do the same to her in 2012, but failed, but was successful in 2013. In 2015, Malcolm Turnbull defeated Prime Minister Tony Abbott and also Peter Dutton's challenge in August of 2018. Uh, but finally, Scott Morrison took the leadership from Malcolm Turnbull when Scott defeated Dutton and Bishop with Turnbull resigning only three days later. We've become depressingly familiar with leadership challenges and the spill process. In today's text, we are uh, looking at a very carefully orchestrated leadership challenge leading up to a spill from the uh, 10th century B.C., um, you see, at present, we're doing a series of sermons on the last third of King David's life. And in today's reading, we hear about David's son, Absalom. We hear about him for the third time. It would seem that he is the heir apparent. It would seem uh, also that Absalom just cannot wait for his dad to die. He just cannot wait, and nor uh, is he, you know, and he's also concerned about the, the uncertainties that would accompany his father's death. He just cannot wait to secure the leadership, the kingship of Israel. Verse 1 tells us that in the course of time, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run out in front of him. He is the first Israelite ever to get himself a chariot although others will follow his lead. A chariot and men to run out the front, these are highly visible symbols of royalty. But up until this time, symbols of Canaanite, Egyptian, Philistinian royalty, not Israelite royalty. Uh, Absalom is doing it his way, and his way, it just so turns out, is the world's way. In verse 2, we hear that Absalom got up early, a phrase in the Old Testament that always indicates a certain seriousness of an earnestness of endeavor. As someone who gets up early, who rises up early, is someone on a mission. 
And Absalom heads out of Jerusalem, stationing himself on the road leading to the city gate. Now, uh, what I'm about to say is, is, is kind of conjecture. I'm not really sure about this, but I, I think it's likely that Jerusalem probably had a kind of two-tier of government kind of thing. The, the federal government, so to speak, would have been located in King David's court in the palace of the king. But the local or city government was probably situated at the city gate, where a group of older men, known simply as elders, might resolve local lawsuits and squabbles and also witness legal transactions like the the sale of property. Absalom puts himself way out beyond, even beyond the gate. He is the first person anyone from any other Israelite city is going to encounter even before they get to the city gate. And having stationed himself in this key position, he does a sterling job of PR. He starts by asking people about themselves, um, gaining their trust, giving them the feeling that he cares about them individually. He, he listens to their problem and, with duplicity, feigns solidarity. Look, you've got every right to be upset. But then he adds to their sense of lostness by stating, Oh, but you won't get justice in there. You see, there's no representatives available to hear cases like yours. And uh, when he says that, it's a jibe. It's a jibe against his own dad. That his, he, He's saying that his father is failing in his fundamental duty as king, which is to administer justice in the name of the Lord. Um, perhaps it, it's possible that there, there might have been some truth to Absalom's claim for it to rest on. Um, David's administration possibly may have been overwhelmed. We don't know. But what I would say is that David's administration is described in some detail in the book of First Chronicles, chapters 23 to 27. Um, and it really reads like quite some bureaucracy, giving, giving me at least the impression that David was probably very good at administration good at delegation, good at sharing out responsibilities to appropriately gifted people. And indeed, even in our text today, various advisors and counselors are mentioned in the course of our narrative. So what Absalom is saying probably has no basis in fact. He is simply undermining. He is undermining confidence in David's leadership. Um, Having gossiped, about his father, he exalts himself. He big notes himself. Oh, if only I was put in charge, I'd make sure that everybody got justice. We also read that Absalom, he, kinda, he stepped in. Whenever anyone went to bow down in front of him, he stepped in, grabbing hold of them so as to prevent the bow, and, and, he, kissed, and he kissed them. That's shrewd, and it's skillful. And it's shrewd and it's skillful. It's a great intervention because it looks like humility. You only bow down with your face to the floor if, if you're greeting a king. And he's not a king. He says, oh, I'm not a king yet. It looks like humility, but he's manipulating people. He's acting with an ulterior motive. His motive actually is theft. Absalom, we read, stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Now, I think in our age we've adapted that phrase, to steal someone's heart means to win somebody's heart. Perhaps to win a heart that was 
that was a bit reticent or, or, or earlier withheld or a heart that was unsure as to whether it wanted to be one or not. But I'm wondering here if the verb isn't meant in a more pointed way. Absalom stole something that didn't belong to him. Absalom stole something that belonged to David. Absalom stole the respect and the loyalty that the people of Israel owed their king. And in doing so, Absalom betrayed both his father and his king. Sorry, both his father and his country. The warmth, the sympathy, the humility, the kiss, all of this would have been difficult for people to see through. And, and it would have had a very powerful emotional effect. He, he was patient. He was courting the, lect the electorate, so to speak, for four years. Um, as an aside, and uh, uh, if you'll uh, forgive me an aside, you may have noticed that uh, the New Testament commands Christians to greet each other with a holy kiss five times in total. Paul does this uh, in Romans, in Corinthians, and a Thessalonian uh, correspondence. Peter issues the same command, greet one another with a holy kiss, uh, in his first letter to the Christians scattered everywhere. And in the light of that, uh, my apologies for not kissing you this morning as you came in. Uh, in the ancient world, um, a kiss was a powerful sign of acceptance. In social situations, a, a sign of something that we would probably call equality. So then, when Christians kissed each other at church, a holy kiss, slaves and masters, men and women, nobles and proletariat and plebeians and equestrians, the illiterate and the well-educated alike, when they all kissed each other with a holy kiss. It was an astonishing witness to social acceptance and social equality in that place. It said the rules that govern out there don't, don't hold sway in here. Here in our church, in the presence of God, um, the social categories, the social hierarchies that dominate outside, they do not apply. We are all equally accepted by God because we are all equally doomed without his grace in Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, the social convention of kissing, a holy kiss, no longer applies because the kiss no longer means what it used to mean. Nevertheless, we keep the spirit of the command, making sure that there's no favoritism or partiality in our, in, our, in our meetings together, in our greetings of each other, making sure that the social hierarchies of the world aren't contaminating our fellowship. Whenever we do that, whenever we greet each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we are keeping the spirit of the command, even if we're not kissing each other. Uh, that was an aside, but I added that aside so that we can appreciate the significance of Absalom's kiss in our text today. After four years, he lies to his father and he goes to Hebron. Hebron is 20 miles away from Jerusalem. It is a fortress city, easy to defend. And Hebron was the place where David was made king over all Israel. Verse 10. The leadership challenge itself was to be announced throughout a well-prepared Israel by way of trumpets. 
However, as we'll see, they were never necessary. Verse 11, 200 men had been invited along with Absalom as guests, going quite innocently, knowing nothing of the matter. Um, I, I, I feel for them. Uh, they, perhaps uh, like me, find it hard to think politically. Perhaps somebody had written on their report card, this person is easily influenced by their friends. Um, really, really do I ask myself what's behind this invitation. Um, uh, but they would have been wise if they had asked themselves that question. Oh, this is all very nice. But what's behind this invitation? And we might be wise too, also, from time to time to think about what we're invited to join or support. But as we see in verse 12, uh, Absalom wasn't part of a diplomatic mission. He was part of a rebel alliance and a traitor. And yes, I am quoting Darth Vader. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the rebellion goes from strength to strength. We'll look at David's reaction to it next week. For this week... What can we learn from Absalom? Well, actually, I think we can learn a lot from Absalom because we, like Absalom, we live in a hierarchical, hierarchical universe. We live with chains of command, lines of authority, teachers, supervisors, bosses. Most of us experience a working life in which we must give account of ourselves to some form of inline manager someone who used to do our job and someone with a job that one day we will probably do in their place. Up the corporate ladder we go until we reach a point of conspicuous incompetence. For me, after Bible college uh, came ordination and then my first job uh, um, as a curate. Um, now, a curate is a priest with pea plates attached serving in a church under a rector or vicar. Uh, rector is what it would be called here in WA. Vicar is what it's called in, in Victoria and, in fact, in most other places in the world. Um, one of my Bible college friends, who's now, incidentally, the state representative for CMS in Victoria, uh, one of my Bible college friends shared uh, with our year group the advice that he had received for curates. So we, we all got his advice, and the advice that he had gotten, he was he was passing on his advice was as follows was as follows do not shine do not whine do not recline uh, let's go through that in reverse order do not recline do not be lazy this ought to be so obvious as to require little mention but laziness actually is a temptation in every field of endeavor in every workplace and in every job Paul writes words that apply to most of us when he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, 
and there is no favoritism. Um, sometimes, sometimes Christians can justify workplace laziness by appealing to work-life balance. And sometimes, sometimes the right witness is actually might be to work less. But we should be very careful not to rationalize our laziness and so deceive ourselves. Laziness is a very poor witness. But laziness wasn't Absalom's sin, was it? No, he was really hardworking. He was really diligent, getting up early in the morning. So let's move on. That was the first one. Do not recline. The second one, do not whine. In other words, do not be a naysayer or a grumbler. Again, very sound advice. It's so easy to criticize, and it's so simple to spot what's wrong. So much easier to spot what's wrong than to know how to fix it. Accepting the status quo when we start in a new job or when we find ourselves in a junior position, accepting the status quo honors the existing leadership insofar as it allows for the fact that they are not idiots and that the current situation might be miles improved upon what was before and that the current problems, which everyone can see, are more complex than initially appear. James writes... Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. When we grumble, when we complain about our leaders, we use the assumption of our own intellectual superiority to justify rebellion against those whom God has placed in authority above us. And so we deceive ourselves. Do not grumble against the leadership of your church. I'm not saying this for my own sake. I'm saying this because I love you and I don't want the judgment of God to fall upon you. Believe me, I've seen it. It it won't be pretty. Likewise, When us Anglican ministers get together, especially those Anglican ministers who might call themselves evangelicals, whenever whenever we get together, it is incredibly important that we don't grumble against those whom God has placed over us, archbishops, bishops and archdeacons and the like. We do actually do that, Lord have mercy. But God is not happy with us when we do. Thank you, Father, for your forgiveness. If if you find yourself having to leave a church that you're going to or to move denominations because of dissatisfaction with the leadership, well, that's sad, but at least it's honorable to go. To stay and to grumble is extremely dangerous to you. By the way, we hardly ever get the leadership that we deserve. That's because... God is gracious and kind. We almost always get better leadership than we deserve. So we must resist the temptation to whine and grumble about our leaders. It is the pursuit of fools. When Absalom draws attention to the deficiencies of David's administration, either real or invented, he is rebelling against the Lord's Messiah. He is whining And he is creating a culture of grumbling within Israel. And actually, Israel has form when it comes to this. 
It's not a good thing to do. This is not going to go well for any of them. Secondly, do not whine. Thirdly, do not shine. Uh, do not shine. That doesn't, of course, uh, mean aim, aim to be average, disguise yourself as mediocre, hide your light under a bushel. It doesn't mean that. No, it means do not shine means do not draw attention to yourself so as to exalt yourself. The Bible is constantly repeating this theme or variations of this theme. God will most assuredly humble those who exalt themselves and he will exalt those who humble themselves. It's one of the strongest and most easily discerned themes in Scripture. From Genesis 3 onwards, those who grasp for high position end up crawling on their bellies. And the same God who reigned in Absalom's day and who reigned in the garden, reigns today. So when you see this pattern in your school or in your workplace or in politics, federal or local, you can know for sure what's going to happen. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what he sows. The pattern is clear enough just from the history of our own prime minister's. Those who grasp for leadership end up disgraced and displaced sooner or later. Leadership is recognized by people and bestowed by God, but never grasped. For, for, for me, as a callow and insecure curate, who by way of his own fallenness and lack of insight thought he deserved more credit and approval than he was getting, I did not always resist the temptation to shine. Uh, part of the problem was envy. I envied those who were more successful than me or uh, those whose ministries received more attention than mine. Uh, what envy does, and it's extremely clever in this, what envy does is that it so deceives us that when we do evil, we think we are doing good. Um, as a child and as a teenager, uh, um, uh, occasionally I uh, stole things, uh, gossiped or slandered people out of envy. In other words, when I did evil against people, I thought I was doing good because I believed that some kind of cosmic injustice was being corrected by way of my action. Lord have mercy. Envy is difficult to spot, but it is essential that we do so. It makes us do evil and foolish things, and we think we're doing good. And it can tempt us to shine when we shouldn't. And there's a second temptation. Uh, do not shine. There's a second temptation going on here too. Uh, you see, there is a very particular temptation associated with being the second person in charge. The so-called aptly named Absalom temptation. And as a curate, I was second in charge after the vicar. The temptation is this. You are an easy and obvious rallying point for people within the organization who have become dissatisfied or disappointed with the principal leader. I experienced this phenomenon for myself at my first church where I was the curate and I was stupid enough 
to enjoy the attention and approval it brought my way. Although I was just smart enough, by God's grace, to not directly challenge my boss's leadership. But I am sorry to say that my loyalty to my vicar was not always what it should have been, especially when I was at the pub with parishioners and she wasn't around. Principal leaders always disappoint sooner or later. Politicians especially so. This is not because leaders are unusually disappointing people, but rather because disappointment is a normal part of every human relationship. Do not shine. That is to say, do not exalt or draw attention to yourself so as to outshine others. So then, as Christians in the marketplace or in the workplace, we do not exalt ourselves, but rather we submit. Do not shine, do not whine, do not recline. And uh, young people, perhaps please uh, take note of this because it will serve you very, very well. Uh, Being a young person can at times be a very humbling experience, particularly when you find yourselves having to submit uh, to and obey directions from a blockhead, uh, from people that you know aren't as bright or as gifted as you are. And some of you are very, very bright and very, very gifted. And the shame about Absalom is that he was very, very bright and very, very gifted too. Not just a good-looking young man with a charismatic charm. He was clearly super intelligent, capable, hard-working, dedicated, and with a real gift for working with people. No wonder Joab wanted him brought back from Geshur and groomed for leadership. He was such a gifted young man. He will get what he wants, but he'll only hold on to it briefly because he is on a road to destruction. Another young man on a road to destruction was Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Here's how Paul puts it, and I'm going to paraphrase slightly if, if you'll forgive me, but here's how Paul puts it. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus submitted to his Father's will and he gave himself into the hands of evil men men, that he might die an unjust death. Submission meant destruction. Therefore God exalted him to the very highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the sun and, and on the earth sorry and that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus humbled himself as fully as all humility could possibly take him, unjust destruction through submission to those in authority, God raised him as high as exaltation could take him to the place of sovereignly being in charge of everything as king and lord and God and people will bow and people will worship. Therefore, having understood that pattern, of, of, of self-humbling in order that God might exalt, in, in having understood that pattern, therefore, my do, dear friends, do everything without shining or whining or reclining so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Let us, therefore, let us therefore submit. Let us submit to every lawful authority. Let us submit to one another. Let us submit to, to those God has put above us, whether at home or at school or at work or at church, and clothing ourselves with humility and humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. Let's wait in order that he might lift us up in due course. And the Lord be with your spirit. Amen.